Fish Bites Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Aram Layton, and we're back after a little bit of a holiday break, but I promise we will make it well worth your while as I am joined by Marlins legend, Mr. Marlin himself, Jeff Conine. Jeff, thanks for joining me today. My pleasure, Arm. So if it's okay, I want to start with your background a little bit. Of course, everyone knows you are the only Marlins player to win both World Series titles with the team, the only Marlins player to win an All-Star Game MVP, the first to successfully steal a base. I don't think everyone knew that one, but there's so many things you accomplished in a Marlins uniform, but I don't think a lot of people know what you did to get there. I mean, you were a pitcher at UCLA, you're a California native, and you enter the draft as a hitter? Can you explain that story a little bit and clarify it for some people that have no idea about how you actually reached the major leagues? Ball. Um, yeah, I was recruited as a pitcher um, and a DH uh, at UCLA. And the teams that I had there uh, in the mid-80s were pretty powerful as far as offense was concerned. So the DH kind of fell by the wayside pretty quickly, and uh, I became just primarily a pitcher. Um Halfway through my sophomore year, uh, my pitching coach quit uh, because he was at odds with our head coach. I didn't really see eye to eye, so he decided to move on and become a scout for the Royals and do that while I continued to pitch uh, through my junior year, having mediocre success uh, at best. That might be um, a a generous uh, characterization of my college pitching career was mediocre. But um, I ended up running into my former pitching coach who is now a scout for the Royals at one of our practices at Jackie Robinson stadium there at UCLA. And, uh, he asked me about my baseball career and how it was going. And if I was going to come back and try to play a position my senior year. And I said, no, coach Adams wants me as a pitcher and that's what I'm going to be. Uh, he said, well, what if I put your name in for the draft? And I, like I said, I was a pretty mediocre college pitcher. I didn't think anybody would want me professionally as a pitcher. And I said, as what? And he goes, as a position player. I'm like, I haven't picked up a bat in three years. I hadn't had one at bat in three years since I've been at UCLA. So I kind of laughed it off and I said, whatever, you know, you're the scout. Um, I didn't know what to think of it. Fast forward to the draft starts on Monday. I get a call from his name's Guy Hansen, who is my pitching coach. Now a, uh, uh, then scout for the Royals and, and ended up being the pitching coach at the Kansas City Royals in the big leagues for a little while as well, but um, he calls me and says, hey, we got you. And I'm like, what do you mean you got me? Uh, Draft started on Monday. And he said, well, uh, there was a record number of rounds this year and we got you in the 58th round. And I started laughing. I didn't even know they went that high. And uh, (laughs) he said that they, uh, I think Cleveland picked up into the 70th round that year. Um, So anyway, that's what started my journey in professional baseball. I went to uh, Instructional League in um, Florida at the old Clark Road complex in, in Sarasota, Florida, and was completely overmatched. I had uh, no clue what I was doing as a hitter because I hadn't hit in so long and uh, really didn't click for me until the following spring training after that, my about a month into my single A season, I finally kind of hit the ground running and, and from there on uh, started hitting the ball pretty well and, and moved through the system. So what do you think he saw in you uh, as a hitter? with not even really hitting in front of him. Obviously, you're a great athlete. You, you play racquetball. You've, you've run marathons. Uh, you did the seven marathons in seven continents or something I'll also talk to you about a little bit later. Uh, you obviously are, are a phenomenal athlete. Do you think that's what he saw in you and th- figured he could 
shape you as a hitter? Or what do you think he saw? I think that was part of it. Uh, I think uh, work, work ethic was another big thing. I think I outworked everybody. Um, you know, we would go as pitchers. We would take pitchers batting practice, you know, every once in a while, not very often. And I think uh, I shined pretty well there because I hit, in, I hit in high school. Um, and another thing that we did as pitchers group for conditioning, we'd go down to the beach and play beach volleyball. <laughs> so I think just all those things combined, he, you know, he saw the athleticism. He saw how hard I worked. And he felt that with my hand-eye coordination that I would take uh, to playing a position quickly at the professional level. And to be clear, talking about the rounds, going back to that where you said you didn't even know there were 58 rounds, you'd be 18 rounds over the limit nowadays as we only do 40. So that shows how crazy of a long shot your story was to begin with. But another thing that was fascinating to me is how you said you were overmatched right when you got to the minor leagues. But in, you, you climbed through the rankings so quickly you ended up getting your first major league at bat by 1990 and that was for the Royals. What was that like finally making it to the bigs after seemingly feeling like a long shot your entire career, almost laughing at the idea of being drafted as a hitter. And all of a sudden three years later, you were playing outfield in the major leagues. Yeah, it was, uh, you know what, in my mind, I told myself I was going to give myself three years with this kind of experiment. I said, if I'm not close, in three years, then, you know, I'll move on. I'll uh, say that I did it, did my best and I'd go back to school, finish my degree and, and join the business world somewhere. Um, and lo and behold, I get called up at the end of my double A season uh, after my third year um, to the Royals. And my first at bat in the big leagues was following Bo Jackson, who had hit one of the most massive home runs I've ever seen hit. Uh, even to this day in my life, uh, I had to, I had to follow that. Uh, for my first at bat in the big leagues and um, you know just when you get that call when you get that you've been working so hard and no it wasn't a dream of mine when I was a kid or anything like that but I worked really really hard as soon as I made that commitment to to give this thing a shot I worked my tail off and when you finally get that call from your manager in double a to, to call you into the office until you've been called up to the big leagues so you can play in front of the water fountains in Kansas City uh, that was a pretty special phone call so you mentioned it wasn't your dream as a kid. So you didn't always imagine being a major league baseball player. Like most of these major leaguers say, oh, I knew I was going to be a major leaguer when I was five years old. Well, what was your dream if it wasn't to be a major league baseball player? Um, honestly, I don't really know. I mean, I, I, I didn't mind playing baseball. Um, you know, I played little league and, and that with my friends. And But if there was any money in racquetball, I probably would have been a professional racquetball player. That was my... <laughs> That was my main sport and what I was passionate about. And I played constantly. I even took, I didn't play baseball when I was 13 and 14. So I could focus on racquetball. That's amazing. And that's something that would stump a lot of people. But actually there were a few questions on Twitter asking if you still played racquetball, uh, but we know you're, you're on the men now from all of those marathons you did, but are you planning on getting back into the racquetball arena? <laughs> no, actually focusing on tennis. Now I've got, uh, Nice place to play here in Weston, and and um, my wife says she's all in on tennis, and she wants to start playing doubles <laughs> with me. So now that I've got all my my uh, injuries fixed, I'm gonna start playing more tennis. That sounds great. And you mentioned Joe, Bo Jackson. I have to go back to that because I've been told that you have a pretty cool Bo Jackson story from spring training, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was in spring training. This is after he injured his hip uh, playing football with the Raiders. We're in the training room, and I'm getting my shoulder stretched out, and Bo is on the, ta the table next to me. And um, 
you know, he looks at me and goes, hey, Conan, I hear you're pretty good at racquetball. And I said, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm pretty good. And he's like, he goes, I want to play you sometime for some big money. And I'm like, okay, I like your idea of big money and my idea of big money are two different things totally, I'm sure. So what are we talking about here? He said, I don't know. How about uh, 15 grand? And, you know, my eyes literally bugged out of my head and I had to put them back in the sockets because I'm like, okay, I'll do that. And I said, uh, how many points do you want? You know, because obviously I didn't know how much he knew about racquetball, but he knew that I was supposedly good at it. And he said, I don't want any points. I'll play you straight up. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is going to be the easiest money I've ever made in my life. So that was the conversation we had. And I said, um, you know, do you need a racket? And I said, I can get you a racket. He goes, I'll get my own racket. I can get a racket from Wilson or something like that. And at the time, Wilson didn't even make racquetball rackets, but uh, which I thought was funny. But, uh, you know, one of those legendary stories that never he ended up, you know, having the hip thing and having surgery. So we never got to play. <laughs> and he's he's a freak athlete if there's ever been one. I mean, uh, but he would have scored zero. <laughs> he would have scored zero. I tell you that right now. <laughs> well, uh, if Bo Jackson, if I'm lucky enough to get Bo Jackson to listen to that, I, maybe we can get a follow up challenge eventually. <laughs> but uh, full disclosure, though, I, I want to get to the to the part where you get to the Marlins because you, you pretty much only got a, a cup of coffee with the Royals, and you ultimately get selected by the Marlins in the 1992 expansion draft. Obviously, they didn't even exist at the time. I guess they just just began to exist. They didn't even have a full roster yet. What was it like, full disclosure, what was it like to be drafted by that new baseball team from Miami? What were you thinking? Well, when I had found out that I was not protected uh, in the first round of the expansion draft, because you could protect 15 players on your 40-man roster, and I'd gotten a call from a friend that morning telling me that I was not protected on that first round. So I knew there was a chance that I might go somewhere in the draft. And to be honest, uh, I was hoping it was Colorado because when I was uh, in AAA for the Royals, we played at Mile High Stadium uh, because the Brewers had a AAA team in Colorado that played there. And I loved playing in Denver. I love the city of Denver. Um, you know, I like hitting that thin air. And uh, I just really, really love that setting where, you know, I played two years in the Florida State League at spring training down in Florida, and I wasn't a big fan of the summers in Florida as far as the weather was concerned. And I was hoping that Colorado would call my name. Well, during the draft, uh, you know, they announced that they had signed Andres Galarraga to play first base. And I'm like, darn, there goes my chance to play for the Colorado Rockies. And, um, and then I found out that Arrestus Estrada was coming to the Marlins to play first base as well. But the past season, I had uh, switched to the outfield. I played some outfield, so I knew that was a shot as well. But, you know, when they called that 11th pick and they said from the Kansas City Royals and it was me, I was like, I really was uh, truly excited because I knew that I was going to get a shot to start at the big league level and to make an impact on a brand new team and, and start with a brand new franchise. So um, it was a crazy whirlwind of an off season. And when I think back on it now, you know, just the excitement that I had for the opportunity given uh, to play major league baseball was, that's all that really mattered. And I want to, we'll get into the specifics there, but I, I want to talk about what you did with the Marlins overall. Of course, the only player to win both World Series titles with the Marlins. The only the first player to wear the number 19, the first player to successfully steal a base, third base of all bases too, which is 
pretty pretty interesting if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. And of course, the only Marlin to be named All Star Game MVP. In terms of personal accomplishments, we'll get into the World Series. Would you say the, where does the All Star MVP rank for you in terms of your individual accomplishments on the baseball field? Uh, that's got to be that's up toward the very top. Um, you know, I, I played in the 1994. Didn't play in the 1994 All Star. I was selected for the 1994 All-Star team, but didn't get into the game. And, you know, that was kind of bittersweet for me. I, I, the way the game played out or whatever, I was one of the only players left on the bench uh, by the end of the game because it was a close game going late innings. And um, the next year when I went, I got selected again in 95, and uh, Philippe Alou was the All-Star manager that year. And he said, you know what? He goes, I – I'm all for getting everybody in this game. So everyone's going to get a chance to play. So I knew that I was going to probably get in at some point. It'd probably be uh, in a pinch hitting role um, at some point. And just to do come through with a big hit like that in that situation uh, on a national stage um, was by far the biggest moment of my life at that point, uh, as far as baseball is concerned. And if you exclude, you know, World Series titles and playoff runs and things like that, I still think um, that was one of the happiest days of my life. And that's when the games actually mattered. You know, you were playing for home field advantage and all that. So another reason why maybe you didn't get in in that first all-star game. Now it's a little bit more of an exhibition game. But, of course, that that hit ended up proving pretty pretty monumental and earning home field advantage for the National League. I want to talk about the World Series, of course. First was 97. One of, you were with the Marlins that entire season. In 2003, you end up coming over on the waiver deadline, August 31st. I'll talk about 97 in a second because I want to make sure I remember uh, to ask you about this day. You come over at the very, very, very last minute possible to even have a trade that's after the, the non-waiver deadline. So it's already harder to make a deal in August. And they make it right on August 31st. 2003. Can you take us through that day a little bit and, and what that was like to end up getting sent back to Miami? Yeah, it was a little crazy. Uh, we were in Seattle and playing the Mariners. We had a day game, obviously, and we get to the airport. And the way they set up the TSA checks uh, for us at airports is right in front of the plane, right? You know, before the stairs, you go up to get on the plane. So there's always like a big rush. Everybody gets up the bus real quickly. So I stayed back and I was like the only person left on the bus in the very back, just waiting for everybody to get through security. And uh, Jim Beatty, our GM, comes walking onto our bus, which never, ever happens. And there are two or three players up in the very front of the bus. And I was just kind of sitting back, listening to music in the back. And he passed them and started walking towards me. So I knew something was up at that point. So he takes a seat next to me and he goes, Jeff, he goes, uh, we're working on a tentative deal to send you back to Florida to play for the Florida Marlins. And I just looked at him. And I said, you're kidding, right? And he's like, no, I'm not kidding. Uh, but there's contingency uh, with the last year of your contract. The Marlins wanted to re- rework the last year of my deal that I had with the Baltimore Orioles. And it was contingent upon me agreeing to that before the deal would go through. So this is back in the day where you had phones in the back of the uh, headrests on planes. And that was my only communication uh, line that I could get this deal done. So I immediately got on one of those phones when I got on the plane, contacted my wife first and told her what was going on. She went crazy, obviously, because I was coming back home to play. 
And then I said, I got to get a hold of my agent. Well, my agent was in the air going from Oklahoma City back to Southern California. So my wife, Cindy, was here at the house coordinating phone calls between uh, the Marlins. They would call Cindy. And whenever I could call on the air phone plane, I'd get updates from her. She was calling the uh, wife of my agent, who was back in Southern California, giving her all the updates and information. So as soon as he landed, he had all everything going on. And then once in a while talking with the Marlins and what they wanted to do with my last year, my deal and what was going on with that. Well, this is also back when the trade deadline was at midnight Eastern time. So I was going to be in the air at midnight Eastern time. So I had to get this deal done on the plane if it was going to happen at all. So it was a crazy couple hours of trading phone calls. I never actually saw what that bill was uh, on the air phone, which I'm sure was pretty substantial. Cause you had to swipe <laughs> a credit card. Um, I don't know if they gave me to give it to me for free or what, but, um yeah we uh finally agreed at 11:58 I remember Larry Byingfield got on the phone he goes Jeff he goes I have to know right now I have to have this deal in to the commissioner's office in 2 minutes yes or no and I said yes let's do it and I don't even think he said he didn't hear him say anything he just hung up the phone so he could get onto the fax machine and fax in that we had a done deal and uh I literally got the deal in within minutes of uh, the, the midnight deadline it's amazing that you got it in with two minutes to spare. I, I remembered you mentioning that story in the past, and I, I wanted to make sure we touched on that one. But I, going back to 1997, of course, a much different situation going into the World Series. You're with the team the entire year that year. You have a phenomenal year with the Marlins. And then, of course, a great postseason. What was it like being on that team that had a little bit of a veteran presence to it, a lot more than 2003? And a more consistent season. Of course, 2003 was one of the biggest turnarounds in baseball history. In 97, that World Series itself was crazy thrilling. Of course, you have the, the famous Craig Council crossing home plate. What was that season like in comparison to 2003 and that entire marathon just going into the postseason and then eventually the World Series? Well, in the offseason of 1996, 97, um, you know, Wayne Huizinga, the then owner of the Marlins, gave Dave Dombrowski a directive saying, listen, I want to know if baseball is going to survive down here in South Florida, if these fans are going to come back, you know, because post or pre-strike, we were drawing three million fans a year. We, we had two seasons of three plus million fans. And after the strike, everything kind of went away. And Wayne wanted to know if they would come back if we produced a winner. So Dave Dombrowski started uh putting on his, rolled up his sleeves and went out and got some major, major talent, uh, Moises Alou and Bobby Bonilla and Devon White. And, you know, you really tooled this team into a championship caliber team. So going into spring training, you know, he hired Jim Leland as the new manager. And uh, we knew that we had something special going into spring training. I still think that we might hold the Grapefruit League record for wins. I think we were 26 and five that spring training or it was crazy how often we won. I mean, even if we had split squads, everyone would come back, you win? Yep, we won, yep. We couldn't get beat. And I think that feeling of how we played together just carried over into the season. We we lost some series we shouldn't have lost to teams, but the big ones, the big game series, we we beat the Braves out of 8 out of 12 that year. We played the Yankees in uh, in interleague play. We beat them. We beat the Orioles in interleague play. Uh, you know, we beat all the biggest teams. So we knew we had what it took um, 
to go deep into the postseason. And it was a special team. You know, it really was. It's more of a veteran presence. I always say the difference between the two is like 1997 was built to do what it did. And 2003 was just the most fun I've ever had on a baseball field because uh, of the personnel that we had and the, and the antics that uh, we would enjoy during games, after games, just the greatest bunch of guys that uh, were having a good time. And it didn't seem like work at all. And it never seemed like we were out of a game uh, in 2003. But uh, 1997. And I'm excited again. Just as, yeah, you know, continue, sorry. obviously very special. When you win a World Series, it doesn't matter uh, how you get there or how you do it. But um, it was a different feel on both of those teams, but uh, equally as special. And I'm excited to get into 2003 because that that just seemed like such a, a miracle season, whereas 97, like you said, was something built. You guys had expectations going into it. Take me through that World Series a little bit, though, or even the postseason. You're talking about how Heisinga wanted to know if if baseball could survive. And once you reach the postseason, you have, what, 65, 70,000 people packing that football stadium. What was it like to play baseball in an atmosphere like that? Did you ever play in an atmosphere like that for baseball and the remainder of your career? Well, one other time before that, the inaugural game between the uh, Rockies, they were still at Mile High Stadium. So we got, uh, I think, 65 or 70,000 for their uh, inaugural season or inaugural season with us, um, series with us. And uh, that was pretty crazy. But you couldn't match the intensity of a, of a playoff caliber crowd at 65,000, whatever we had. And, you know, we didn't even sell out the first round of the playoffs. It was like 41,000. They cover, used to cover up the bleachers in the, in the outfield. And they had a couple extra tarps up there that I noticed because they couldn't sell um, all those seats. But as the postseason progressed and we went to the NLCS, then everything was opened up. We got 55 or 56 for the NLCS. And then, of course, World Series, you sell out and do 65 or 67 or whatever. I can't remember how the what the attendance was, but. To have that kind of electricity, you know, Miami's a an event-driven town, and they show up and are loud for big events. And obviously, in baseball, you can't get bigger than that. And they showed up, and it was uh, it was electric down there. It was really a lot of fun. And of course, the emotions of that game seven. Where does that rank? Of course, you had some crazy games in two thousand three that we'll get into in a minute. Uh, of course, the Steve Bartman game, one of the craziest comebacks we've ever seen. But where does that 97 Game 7 rank in terms of the most thrilling games you've been a part of? Well, I think the whole series. <clears throat> you know, we traded games every single game. So we won the first one, and we traded off wins until it came down to a one-game playoff, basically, on Game 7. And, you know, it was uh, – we got a break. We, they were down – we were down 2 nothing going the eighth inning, I think, is when um, second baseman for the Indians – uh, Tony Fernandez made a big error and we made him pay. We ended up tying up the game in the ninth and it was one of the best played series. I think it gets overlooked as far as, you know, in the annals of history of the greatest world series ever played from front to start to finish. That's got to be one of the best. And I think because we were an upstart team only five years into our existence, we had no history and the Indians hadn't made it to a world series uh, in a long time. They, they, were beaten a couple of years earlier by the Braves, but I mean, they had one of the greatest teams ever played against and uh, we ended up beating them. And it was that, that game seven was just absolute crazy. I couldn't even, I couldn't even watch hardly. I had got uh pinch hit for by Jim Eisenreich in like the seventh inning 
and I was out of the game. So I'm almost watching every pitch on a, on a TV monitor. I couldn't even stand to watch the game. And when Eddie went up there in the, in the 11th inning and, and hit that ball off Nagy, you know, I got a bird's eye view because I'm watching the TV. And I just, as soon as it cleared his glove, I knew it was into center field. I just started running out on the field because I knew we were going to win. And it was uh, the greatest thing ever. And of course, now you say that's the greatest thing ever, but we fast forward to 2003. Now it's a totally different role for you. You're brought in to a team that at that point, August 31st, they were making a playoff push. They had already turned things around uh, and, and they were looking at the playoffs again. You're acquired as a veteran presence. Of course, your bat was needed too. But they, a veteran presence for this youthful team, probably the most youthful team in the MLB at that point, which was crazy that they were even competing at the level they were. What was it like to almost be that mentor in the clubhouse for some of these young guys who, at the time, I'm curious if you saw, of course you knew some of them were going to be special, but did you know Miguel Cabrera, Dontrello, some of those guys would go on to have the seasons that they had after that? Well, after I played with him for a month, yeah, I knew how special Miggy was and I knew how special Dontrell was. But going in, you know, you know I was in the American League and, and uh, interleague play was relatively new, so I didn't know much about the Marlins. So, yeah, I lived here, but, you know, I'm so busy in the American League and in Baltimore that I don't really follow what's going on here. I don't know the players really. So I have no idea uh, how good this team was or what kind of talent they had. I knew that Mike Lowell took a pitch to the hand and broke his hand, and that's why I was here. That's the only reason they called is because – Mike, broke, Mike Lowe broke his hand on August 30th, and I was on the team August 31st. So coming in, um, I really knew nothing. I didn't even know how close the playoff run was. I think uh, they were down one game out of the wild card when I got there. Um, but to come back home and be in a playoff hunt, I mean, my goodness, that's what you hope for. That's what you put on a uniform for. And, you know, after about a week with this team, I just knew there was something special going on here that, you know, I had 17 seasons that you can pick out the truly special teams that you play on. I went to playoffs twice, and I was two for two. Um, so I knew this one was special, and I knew that uh, we had what it took with the – I think the youthfulness helped us. You know, M Miguel Cabrera didn't even care what if that we were playing in the playoffs. He was a 20-year-old rookie that uh, just wanted to hit. That's all he wanted to do. And Dontrell Willis was electrifying with his personality and his motion and the way he threw the ball. And you got a brash Josh Beckett that didn't care who he was throwing against. He thought he was going to win every time out. And you mix that with probably the greatest infield defense that I've ever played on or against. Uh, when Mike Lowell finally made it back, you had Lowell, Gonzalez, uh, Luis Castillo, and, and Derek Lee over at first. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that and pudge behind the dish. It's, it's, it's really hard to beat. And what, other than the defense, what do you think made that team so good, just so cohesive? Of course, one of my favorite things about that team was the one-two punch at the top of the order with Juan Pierre and Luis Castillo, something you don't see a lot in baseball anymore. Guys that just put the ball in play are almost a, a virtual lock to hit 300 for you and steal 20, 30 bases. Pierre stole 65 that season. I think Luis stole 21. What was what made that team, other than the defense, like you just mentioned, just so cohesive and worked so well together where you guys were able to win so many games you weren't supposed to win? We had fun. I think that was the biggest thing is we had fun. Every day we got to that ballpark, it was fun. And the guys looked forward to coming to the ballpark. And we never felt out of a game. I don't care what the score was. Um, we didn't even look at scoreboard. We knew that 
our offense was good enough to erupt uh, at any time and score a bunch of runs, put a bunch of runs on the board, and I we knew that we had confidence in our bullpen to stop them right where they were. So I think just that, you know, we had so much fun, we had so much confidence that uh, that's what set that team apart from any other team that I played on. And, you know, uh, what a joy to come to the ballpark every day and, and be a part of it with those guys. So, of course, the one of the most frequent questions asked on Twitter was, uh, people wanted to know about the JT Snow throw, of course, to, to throw him out at home plate. Pudge hangs on uh, to advance to the next round, to advance to the NLCS. Can you just take us through that play a little bit? Do you even remember what was going through your head? Did you black out? Did it just happen? Did you just what was going through your head in that play? Were you playing shallow for any reason? Was there was there more to it, or did you just feel it and chuck it home? And it wasn't that simple. No, there was a million things going through my mind in the course of that play. And of course, if you look at it at regular speed, it probably lasts less than 10 seconds. But as you're in it, in my mind, it lasted a minute. You know, I'm out there, not uh, fairly deep. Left field was not that uh, big a, uh, a field for our ballpark back then. So I was playing probably regular depth on, on the field. We had Jeffrey Hammonds at the plate who had some pretty good power. So I wasn't giving up a double over my head because you got the tying run on second. Um, you don't want him to get to be the winning run on second. So pitch goes in, and I see a pretty big swing, so I almost took a stutter step back because I thought he made better contact than he did, and he hit it off the end. So I just start sprinting in, and as I'm running in, I'm thinking, all right, well, it's two outs. That guy's going to score because I got too far to go to get to this ball. Should I die for it? And if I die for it, is the ball going to squirrel away? And then Jeffrey Ham's going to get to second base, and now he's going to be the lead run on second base, and I can't do that. So what am I going to do here? I got to I got to try to catch it on a short hop, and then on a short hop, I'm just going to say, all right, well, I got to hit my cutoff man because that's my job as an outfielder. I'm just going to let it go and, and hit my cutoff man, and I'll be out of the play. So I get that wicked kind of checked up short hop. I grab it as fast as I can, get rid of it as fast as I can. That was my only thought. It was get it and get rid of it as fast as you can. And I swear that ball was about two feet out of my hand, and I looked down, and I saw where JT Snow was, and I couldn't believe it. I'm like, wait, he's just past third base. And I look at the trajectory of my throw, and I'm like, this is going to make it there in plenty of time. I said, I just hold on, Pudge, just hold on. So right then, it just seemed like everything just went slow motion. Like, everything went quiet. It's almost like you're at the, you know, you see in the movies when you see the ball, you can see the rotation of the seams. And I saw the skip, and I knew it was going to be, you know, a, a long skip. It wasn't going to be like a, a short hop. And I saw Pudge grab it. I saw him put his hands around the glove, and I'm like, he's secured, man. There's going to be a collision. And just hold on. Just hold on. And sure enough, he slams into him, and then I see Pudge's arm go up the ball in his hand, and then everything goes back to regular speed, and we all go berserk. It was going crazy. And it was uh, the coolest way that I've ever ended a game, uh, and it just happened to be <laughs> to clinch a series. Probably the most famous play in Marlins history besides the Game 7 walk-off, as we were talking about before. People don't realize how much goes into every single play, the amount of decisions you have to make on just a single ball like that, even with two outs. But another thing I wanted to, to ask you about, of course, I have some intel from your son uh, who told me to ask you about Tim Wakefield. And he says yeah. you're not a fan of knuckleball. Uh, do you know exactly what you hit against Tim Wakefield? Um, exactly. I think it's about... Uh... 100 points less than what I weigh, which is not great. Uh, and it wasn't I was a, not a fan of a knuckleball, just not a fan of Tim Wakefield. For some reason, I could not hit his knuckleball. And 
when I looked in the end of my career, you know, they show you the best and worst you were against anybody. And Tim Wakefield was at the very top. And I hit like 139 against Tim Wakefield. And I faced him a lot because we were in the same division. I would say there's more on the other end of things that you're like, wow, he hit guys that no one could hit. Of course, the first one on the list is Hall of Famer Greg Maddox. You were 16 for 54. That's a 296 batting average off of Greg Maddox. One of the most difficult pitchers to hit in MLB history. Talk about a guy that just threw darts up there. What worked for you against Maddox? Obviously, it's a large sample size, so you can't chalk it up to just good luck. You know what? I just realized that uh, this is a guy that's not going to really give me anything to hit. And I tried to hit it where he threw it. You know, basically, I didn't try to pull anything because if you try to get into a pattern with him, he'll, he'll exploit that. And really, you know, I didn't really do any damage with him. I got hits, but uh, I don't think I, I didn't hit a home run off of Greg Maddox and maybe a couple doubles. But, you know, I got my base hits against him. And it was just about being patient and, you know, because that guy could do anything with a baseball. It was crazy what his ball did. The movement he could get on his ball was uh, absolutely absurd. And the second most hits you've had in your career off of a pitcher was actually LeVon Hernandez. Did playing with him have anything to do with that? Or what, what do you chalk your success against LeVon Hernandez up to? Um, you know, there's a comfort level, obviously, when you played with someone and you know what kind of guy they are. And uh, you take that fear factor out of it that, uh, hey, is this going to get a drill me at any time? But, you know, LeVon was a great guy, and I played with him, and I knew him real well. Um, and I think that was just it. I was just comfortable and confident against him. And, you know, he wasn't throwing very hard uh, when I got most of my hits off him. He was just a, a guy that really spotted the baseball. And I waited for him to make a mistake. And then, uh, you know, I, I, I did well against him for that reason. And this is my favorite one, and it's very timely. Mariano Rivera, you, you hit a home run off of him in your career. You also were 6-for-16 six off of the first unanimous Hall of Famer as he was just inducted uh, a couple weeks ago. What was your approach to Mariano Rivera, the guy who sawed bats for a living and just threw one pitch, but nobody could figure him out? And here he is today, a unanimous, the first unanimous Hall of Famer. That was curious uh, because when I first faced him, uh, when I was with Baltimore, you know, I asked my teammates – give me a scouting report. And they said, he's got a fastball. I'm like, what else? Like, oh, he just throws a fastball. Yeah, they said, it's a cutter. You know, it, it cuts. And I'm like, that's it. That's all he throws is a cutter. I'm like, yep. I'm like, all right. So I get up there and first pitch he throws me is a cutter, but it's at 95 and it wasn't a cutter. It was a slider. That's how much his ball moved. And I just stepped out. I'm like, oh my God, I've never seen a fastball like that before. It was literally a slider at 95. And it was just, uh, it was survival mode against him. You just hope that uh, you caught that thing on the right part of the barrel because it's moving so much that, uh, you know, and I never, I never knew I did that well against him. I had a uh, reporter after he retired come up to me when I was at Marlins Park and he said, uh, Hey, I'd, I'd love to interview you about your success against Mariano Rivera. I'm like, really? I, ha I had success against Mar. He goes, yeah, you were six for 16 off. I'm one of the few guys that ever, you know, hit him pretty well. I'm like, Whoa, all right. I didn't know that. And I'll be glad to talk about that. I have no idea why he did that well. It was uh, it was a uh, sneaky six for sixteen. I had no idea. I do remember the home run though. That was that was a big hit. More people have walked on the moon than uh, people that have hit home runs off of him in the postseason, which is absolutely incredible. <laughs> Besides Tim Wakefield, who was the toughest pitcher you faced? Obviously, you hit a lot of guys. Several guys you hit very well are Hall of Famers now. Mike Messina, another one. Who was the toughest pitcher you faced? Um, in terms of just, uh, stuff and having, um, 
Pedro was probably right up there for me. He could do whatever he wanted with a baseball. You know, he could throw it at 98. He could throw a change up at, at 70. And what he could do movement-wise and control-wise was probably as good as anybody that I faced. Um, you know, there's a couple guys. The first time I ever faced Clemens was one of the most dominating performances. He struck out 17 of us that night. Uh, Chris Carpenter uh, threw a, a one-hitter against us in St. Louis that, for me, that night was one of the most dominating pitching performances that I ever ever faced. Um, you know, but your job as a hitter not to be fearful of anybody. So it's not like I was scared of anyone. I just had more respect for some guys than others as far as uh, how they could, you know, place a baseball where they wanted to. And uh, those are a couple of guys that, that really stand out in my mind. So I mentioned your son giving me some intel on some of the guys that, that you struggled against. Of, of course, your son it was just a second-round pick now for the Blue Jays this past year, had a phenomenal season at Duke. What was it like watching your son become a professional baseball player before your eyes? Nerve-wracking. You know, um, it's been my whole life. And with that kind of background and that kind of knowledge, I know exactly what he's going through. Uh, so when he struggles, I struggle, you know, he does well, I do well. It's just you, the roller coaster of our emotions that, you know, as a baseball player, you need to control that because it's a daily thing. You have to, if you have a bad game, you got to turn the page and, and get back out there the very next day. So, um, it's been amazing and fun and, you know, I can't speak how proud I am of him and his work ethic and the way he goes about his business and the way he plays the game the right way. And, you know, everything that I tried to embody in my career, he's doing now. And that uh, that's even more special for me than, than doing it myself. The time going into the draft was pretty crazy for, for both of you, for your whole family leading into the draft there. I mean, Griffin was still playing baseball. I mean, Duke was having the best season that they've ever had since probably 1961, but the first 41 season in the program's history. So you can make the case that it was the best season in Duke baseball history. That leads right into the draft. You guys are in Athens watching Duke take on Georgia. Griff homers twice, if I'm not mistaken, on the day of the draft. You guys win to advance to the Super Regional and then go to a sports bar to watch Griffin get drafted and what you expected to be in the first two rounds ends up being in the first two rounds as he's selected by the Blue Jays. What was that day like? And how did that compare to any kind of crazy day you had in your career? I mean, I'm getting goosebumps right now just thinking about it. and. You know, being able to follow Duke around uh, on their road uh, in the postseason, you know, lost the first game of that that regional, and had to come back and not lose another game, um, and they had to beat uh, Georgia twice to win the regional, and that's a you know a top eight team that they were going against, uh, bonted, and we were down to like the last two innings, and we were not uh, playing well, we were not swing the bats well and all of a sudden that team erupted and scored some ungodly number of runs. I wish I could remember the numbers, but they scored like 43 runs in the next 18 innings or something like that and ended up winning that regional. And like you said, Griff hit three home runs that day, hit two in one game and one in another. And, you know, then comes the biggest day of his life. Basically we're all at uh, uh mellow mushroom pizza place. We got this big table in the back. The whole team was there. And to be able to watch his name pop up on the television screen, everybody starts screaming and cheering and yelling. It was 
Uh, I can't even tell you how special that day was. Griffin's been so successful as a baseball player. Of course, you played a huge part in that, even though you're not going to take a lot of credit. What advice would you give to parents that are raising kids to be baseball players? The crazy thing about Griffin, before you answer that question, that he'll probably kill me for mentioning, is that he was kind of like you when he was young. He wasn't that into baseball. He was a skateboarder, if I'm not mistaken. He was uh, like long hair. Uh, Ken Griffey Jr. offered him thousands of dollars to chop his hair off, and he said no. Uh, He he really wasn't into baseball, and you obviously didn't pressure him into it because it probably would have pushed him away even more. What would be your advice to a dad that wants to raise his kid to play baseball and just to keep him going in the right direction? Because obviously here Griffin is today loving baseball as much as anyone and doing as well as anyone could ever dream. I think, uh, you know what, just let your kids do what they want to do. Yeah, you can support them and you can push them when they need to be pushed, but in the grand scheme of things, when you look at the percentage of kids that ever get to do, even play high school ball or even go on to college and play baseball in college is minuscule numbers. It's point zero 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 tenths of percents that get to do that. Uh, I think parents lose sight of the fact that, that baseball, youth baseball is fun and it should be fun. and to push your kids so hard that they, at such a young age, that they lose passion for the game because they've been pushed so hard for so long at such a young age. For what? You know, for what? Uh, especially if you push and push and push all that time and they don't even go to college and play baseball, what was it all worth? They didn't have fun. Parents didn't have fun because it was so competitive and, and you put too much stress on winning instead of learning the game and having fun that you know, your baseball experience was uh, not what it could have been. So that's what I did with Griff. I just backed off and I said, you know what? I'm here for you. I will do whatever it takes. I'll throw you batting practice till my arm falls off. I'll hit your ground balls. I'll do whatever you want. But I didn't want to be that um, domineering parent that had to have him on a winning team all the time or had to have him with private hitting coaches and, and, you know, workout programs. I just wanted him to progress at his own speed. And I think that's like you alluded to. That's why he has such great passion for the game now is because he did it all on his own. He did it at his own speed. That's the amazing thing is you got to let the kids develop their own passion. It's something my father did with me. And here I am 21 years later, still loving baseball in a different way, covering it and having the opportunity to talk to you. So when it develops in your own way, it, you really love the game in a much more special and unique way. And I have to ask you one last thing about the Marlins now. Of course, I'm not sure if you were part of some crazy rebuilds. A lot of fans wanted to know, what is your advice now? for? I'm asking a lot of advice from you. I'm sorry. Didn't prepare you for that. I, I should have warned you. But what's your advice for fans now that are going through a rebuilding time? What would, what would you tell Marlins fans right now that are dealing with this slow, slow rebuild? You know, um, teams go through rebuilds all the time unless you're one of the big five or six. You know, you got your Boston, you got New York's, uh, the L.A. teams, Chicago's that have that kind of revenue that can afford to just go out there and retool with good free agents. And, well, the rest of the bottom teams that are challenged revenue-wise, they need to develop their own talent. And um, it's a slow process. You know, you, you think about prospects that you get back in, in uh, trades and that's what they are their prospects they you don't know how they're going to turn out you can't predict and you can't project what some guy that had a good a ball season is going to do four years from now in the big leagues you just can't 
And, um, you know, I know it's frustrating as a fan. You want a winning product out there. You want your hometown team to do well. Um, but it just takes patience. And um, for a lot of teams, it doesn't work out very often. Uh, you don't see uh, uh, many teams up at the top every year other than the ones that can afford to do it. And, uh, you know, we were very fortunate to win a World Series five years after we started, and we won another one five years later. Um, and those teams were special. And you hope that you bottle that mag magic and you get that type of personnel in your minor league system and, and coaching staff that just everything comes together and you have a magical season. And that's what we did twice. And I was uh, very fortunate to be a part of both those. Last question I'm going to ask you here. When you're watching baseball now, who is your favorite player to watch? Uh, who do you like Currently? to watch play? Yeah, who, who do you like to just dissect his game and just appreciate what he does on the field? I probably have a lot of um, people in agreement with this, but I got a man crush on Mike Trout. I think he is the epitome of a Major League Baseball player in every aspect of the game, in the clubhouse, on the field, the way he goes about his business, the way he plays the game, his talent level. Uh, I think we're watching maybe the greatest baseball player that's ever played and they're watching history on a, on a yearly basis with this guy. And I think he's that special. That's high praise. And I, I'm right there with you because I think a lot of people forget how special he is because he's all the way out there in the West coast, but not for LA, not for one of the main big market teams, like you were mentioning. And a lot of what he does gets kind of put under wraps and he, he really is one of a once in a generation player, but, once again, I cannot thank you enough for joining us, Jeff. It's been a really fun time getting to know all of the little intricacies that went in through, through your career with the Marlins. I feel like a lot of people are going to be really excited to hear about all the little details. I can't thank you enough for joining me today. My pleasure. It was good talking. I love talking shop. <laughs> Anytime. Thank you very much. All right, Arm.